0: Hello and welcome to This Speech Life, a weekly audio course and podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com, exploring all things related to school-based SLP practice. I'm your host, Caitlin Lopez, MSCCC SLP, a pediatric SLP with 10 years experience in the school setting. Each week, we will cover three need-to-know aspects of that episode topic, two resources related to the topic, and one actionable strategy for tomorrow. Hello, everyone, and welcome. But before I do the formal welcome, we are going to be testing out a pilot feature with today's episode. So if you are interested in being a guinea pig for today's episode, how or the pilot feature, how it's going to work is after we are done recording the podcast episode and recording the video and everything, we're going to end the recording. And if you're willing to stay on for about 10 minutes after, we're going to do a small group chat. So how it will work is You are welcome to ask Danny any questions, and all I ask is that you just raise your hand. Uh, If you go into the participants, I believe you can click on the side of your name to raise your hand, and I will unmute you. I'll call on you. I'll unmute you, and you can ask Danny any questions related to speech. I shouldn't say any question at all, (laughs) but if you are willing to be a part of that, and then at the end of... The feature today in your course survey, if you could just share your feedback as to how you think it went, if it's something that you would be interested in participating in in the future, that would be great. All right. Thank you. Okay. Now we can do our formal introduction. Okay. Welcome to today's episode, the one about imposter phenomenon with the fabulous Danny Gaff. I'm Caitlin Lopez, your moderator, a pediatric SLP based in Southern California. If you have any questions during today's episode, please pop them into the chat. And as a reminder of the conclusion of today's course, please log into your course portal on the speechtherapypd.com website and complete all modules, especially the one entitled quiz to get your live CE credit for today. All right, before we begin, I'm going to report the financial and non-financial disclosures. For my financial disclosures, I receive compensation for this podcast episode from speechtherapypd.com, and I have no relevant non-financial disclosures to report. Danny receives an honorarium for this podcast episode from speechtherapypd.com, and she is also the owner of her private practice, The Messy SLP. She has no relevant non-financial disclosures to report. Okay, if you don't already know her, Danny, who is of the Messy SLP on Instagram, fame, we're just so excited to have her on the podcast today and to talk all things imposter phenomenon and the research she's doing right now. She is a CCC SLP living in South Bend, Indiana, where she works as an elementary SLP. There she serves on the assistive tech team and has a passion for AAC. She also owns her own private practice that allows her to see pediatric clients in their homes after school hours and during the summer. She graduated from Loma Linda University in 2018. She is wrapping up her clinical doctorate degree at Rocky Mountain University of Health Professions, where she is studying the effects of self-affirmation on imposter phenomenon in second-year graduate students. When she's not working or finishing schoolwork, she is enjoying being the messy SLP on Instagram. Danny is newly married and a proud dog mom. She has a passion for helping graduate students have enjoyable experiences. I am just so excited that she has agreed to be on this podcast. She was one of the first ones I asked, and so here we are. So, Danny, let's just jump into it. Tell us about imposter phenomenon and what three things we need to know.
1: Well, I mean, I think just starting with a basic imposter phenomenon, you'll see it a lot on social media as imposter syndrome, and the... I would say the founder of imposter phenomenon, Dr. Clance, she prefers the terminology imposter phenomenon because when we talk about when we say imposter syndrome, that kind of infers that we're diagnosing something. Where when we're talking about imposter phenomenon, we are describing a phenomenon, right? We're describing the experiences that we're having or that somebody else is having. So when we say imposter phenomenon, I wanted to just make that clear because my initial research proposal was for imposter syndrome. And then I got in touch with Dr. Clance and realized I was not correct in my use of that. So I appreciate you using imposter phenomenon to have that, to ensure that we're very clear on what we're doing here. When it comes to imposter phenomenon, I think one of the most important things to know about it is that it's so Multifactorial. And when you look at the research, so in building my lit review and looking at the research, it was there can be so many contributing factors. And so you'll see there's some research on imposter phenomenon and perfectionism, and then imposter phenomenon and self compassion, and then self esteem, and in this population and this population. And it can really be confusing and frustrating as a researcher to not have a specific not a specific link, if you will, just yet, because it is a fairly new, like the research is still quite new. So there's not really one specific cause. And I think that can be frustrating because I'll get messages that'll say, how do I deal with my imposter syndrome or my imposter phenomenon? And it's like, well, (laughs) we're not quite sure if we want to be very research-based about it. So the second thing would be is that the research is really still new and it's still any research that you find is quite foundational. And so this was first identified in 1978. So you go, wow, it's been around for a while. It's been something that has been in discussions for a while when in reality, we're just, I feel, scratching the surface of imposter phenomenon. And that can make it, again, difficult to really find something to latch onto. And in fact, when I was doing my lit review, finding connections, I would find one research article that connected mindfulness and imposter phenomenon, or that would connect with another degree of separation where you're like, I think I can make this link. And so it's kind of, it can be frustrating Because people want answers and really the research is super new, especially when it comes to the SLP realm. It is brand new. I think some of the most recent research I saw was from 2020 in terms of imposter phenomenon in graduate students. And that was in graduate students in an allied health program, not specifically SLP grad students. So this is still a super brand new area of research as well. I would think the other thing that I want people to know is that we are, is in 2017, there was a research study done that found that there is a small likelihood, so it's not impossible, but there's a small likelihood that people, that you can have high feelings of self-compassion, so compassion towards yourself, you can have high feelings of self-compassion while also experiencing imposter phenomenon, and that's kind of what I was like, yep, once I found that article, I hung my hat on it in terms of where I was going with my research because I think that's something super within our control, how much grace and self-compassion we're showing ourselves. And so even though the research isn't going to definitively say, if you work on your self-compassion, you will experience fewer feelings of imposter phenomenon because we know it's multifactorial. And we know that our day-to-day feelings of imposter phenomenon are going to change, right? Based on how well I did at my job that day. But like that's something well within my control. Can I be more compassionate towards myself? And there was, this was not my area of research, but in digging into self-compassion, there is a link between self-compassion and compassion fatigue and the compassion that we're able to show others. So while I will speak only to imposter phenomena, and I will plant the seed that if you're showing yourself more self-compassion, some research might be leaning towards you might be able to then show other people more compassion, which hello, we're in a helping field, right? We need to be able to show others compassion. I need to be able to show the kids who walk through my door compassion and their parents as well as we walk through this journey. So that was a quick three things that I would say about imposter phenomenon. But those are the three things as I was thinking about today that I would like people to walk away with, which I think opens so many more questions and so many more doors <laughs> to conversations. But I think those are the three things that I personally, when I was doing this research for my capstone, I think that's really, those were the three things that stood out to me the most. Fantastic. Thank you. I, You're right. I do have a
0: lot more questions <laughs> just based on those three things because you did do a nice job of kind of quickly summarizing The three things we should know. I guess my first question is what made you be interested in imposter phenomenon?
1: I saw it actually on a fitness Instagram that I followed many years ago. I saw it about a year or two ago. I go, well, it has to have been more than that. So a couple years ago, we'll say, I saw them talking about imposter syndrome and I didn't, I had no idea what it was. And it was this, it was this. Thing where I do remember sitting on my phone and Googling what's imposter syndrome? Like, what in the world is that? And then watching it go from, you know, that one fitness Instagram to now, it is something, it is a, I'll call it a buzzword, if you will. It's a buzzword that you see so often now. I mean, I know that Brene Brown was somebody who brought up imposter syndrome. And so, I mean, if Brene Brown says it, you know that people are talking about it. And so it was, it, it's been interesting watching the evolution, but I went, man, if like, I, I feel that and I relate to that. And so that was something, the reason I wanted to study it is because I was, well, because I was feeling it myself and I wrote, I was able to look back on my time in grad school and go, man, I really felt it there, especially in my second year where you're going you're walking into a clinic and you're expected to be the clinician who's making all of the decisions and you're running the therapy. And then you go into the classroom where you're then expected to put on your student hat and you're expected to know that you know nothing and you have to learn And you know, and then going back and forth. And sometimes you're doing that all in one day where you're running from a clinic and then you're into a class and then into another clinic. And, and then you go into your full-time externships and, I just really saw like, hey, we might be a field that might have this issue. And then as I started talking more about it, more and more people came forward going, I feel this way or I relate to that. And if you think about it, we have how many different areas that we have to study as SLPs and I will feel... I'll feel like an imposter if I'm at a school SLP meeting because there will be somebody, if I'm at a table with school SLPs, there will be somebody who knows something more about R than I do, but I might know something more about AAC than they do. But then if you were to then pluck me out of the school SLP meeting and put me at a table with med SLPs, I am going to feel like a fraud that doesn't deserve the title of SLP because I can't keep up with that conversation, right? Or I can in some regard, but I just, and so it's like, man, that's for a field that has to study so much under one job title. And more so than that, I didn't see much research in the SLP realm. And that bothered me because Like I said, I feel like we're quite, we're, we're open to the imposter phenomenon because of all that we have to do um, for our grad school experience, all that we have to study just to be an SLP. And then I am a person who goes through that on a daily basis. I had it it's super humbling studying imposter phenomenon as you have imposter phenomenon and you're like, man, this is terrible. So I think it was something that I was experiencing and then came to find that there were a lot more people experiencing it than I was. So Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. You know,
0: I think the first time I heard the term imposter syndrome, I was, it was, I'm a yoga teacher in my non-SLP time. And that was the first place that I heard it. So that's fascinating that you heard it also within the fitness realm. And I'm thinking back onto my time, you know, as a grad student and as a first, you know, those first few years as a clinician. And I I did feel like an imposter because of my last year of grad school, I worked on a waiver. So I was an imposter. <laughs> but I mean, there were things that, you know, like I, but being in the clinic and that's a really interesting point that you brought up of being in the clinic and then having to go to class and then being back in the clinic and being expected to be the expert in the room you know, especially with parents that are hearing a diagnosis or hearing, you know, things for the first time. And they're looking to, to us, you know, even though we're still in grad school, we still know more than them in the Mm -hmm. moment, although we feel like we know nothing. And then going back to class and remembering, we don't know anything. And so that is a very, very interesting experience that I have not reflected on. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that it's, it's a great thing that you're studying it because I remember going through grad school and hearing all of the time, especially, I think I was much more intimidated for my rehab and acute care externships, or I don't know what you field works, I guess is what I know several places are calling them. And I remember hearing the phrase, bake it till you make it. Yeah. And that was all that we were given was fake it till you make it. And I'm thinking, I
1: don't even know what to fake. <laughs> yeah. And even that also leads you into so it's called the imposter cycle. And I know like I'm engaging in it now as I go through my research and start putting together a capstone. And this imposter cycle is very simply put you do something for example, for my doctorate capstone, I am procrastinating and I will procrastinate and I have engaged in this cycle before. So I'll procrastinate and then I will rush and stress and I'll cry and my husband will comfort me and I will cry and stress and do all of this, but I will get the work done and it will get done well. I'll pass, right? That's putting that out there. I'll successfully defend, right? And I'll get all of this done and then I'll go, oh, well, that. I was successful and I procrastinated and I put myself under stress. So you'll hear me say I do really well under pressure, which just means I have engaged in this imposter cycle so much. I've been successful and now I'm going to just continue to engage in this cycle because I don't know any other way. And so I think sometimes that fake it till you make it, while this is not going to be a research-based statement, I do think that sometimes that might be a proponent for that imposter cycle. Because if you think about it, so I go into a placement and I quote unquote, fake it till I make it meaning I appear confident and I am like, yep, I'm rocking it. And I have a successful interaction, a successful evaluation. I treat a kid, whatever it might be. I have a kid who successfully graduates, we'll say. And I was just like, "Woof, I was faking it. Then I made it. And so then that's going to be my mantra, right? I'm going to just continue to think that the success of my R student was not due to me using the appropriate techniques. It was due to me. I faked it till I made it. And so then I'm not, I'm discounting any of the work that I might've put in. And so that was actually something that I was kind of shocked by this imposter cycle and I honestly took offense to, because I was like, I don't do that. I'm a former athlete. It's just, I do well under pressure. And then reading more about it, it was like, that is a hundred percent, just the imposter cycle, just rearing its ugly head my way. And so that's interesting that you bring that up because I do think that that can be a proponent because if I say, well, I faked it till I made it, then I'm really not attributing any of the success that I might've had to anything that I might've brought to the table. It's simply that I just faked it and that's it. And that's not a great cycle because then I'm, I'm discounting any of the hard work I might've put in. I love that. I love that,
0: that point that you brought up because I do, I did have a student with me the winter quarter and, she i just remember telling her you've studied you know this and even though you might forget things but remember that you do know more information than the parent and right now even though you might not be the expert in expressive language therapy you are in this room
1: yeah in absolutely
0: terms of, of you know the the coursework that you've taken and the hours that you've studied so i do really appreciate you've brought up that point. And I think that's really fascinating, the under pressure, you know, how many of us are like, oh, well, I do well under pressure, you know, I'm going to say that in my interview or, and actually that might be an unhealthy
1: pattern. Yeah. Now, am I going to break my imposter cycle anytime soon? I don't think so, but I will be aware of the fact that I am engaging in the imposter cycle whilst I engage in it.
0: (laughs) There you go. You know, awareness (laughs) Where this is key, right? Uh, that is awesome. What resources do you have for us that you know we might think that we're kind of going through imposter phenomenon? I know uh, we were just sharing before we started recording the episode. I've been in the field for ten years, and this is the first time that I have worked in a clinic. I've always done school-based, so I'm working with vastly different kids, and even kids who are way younger than I've ever worked with before. And, you know, medically fragile kids. And so I do have, I don't know if it's imposter phenomenon, but I do remember thinking, oh my goodness, this is a steep learning curve. I thought I knew this and I don't, I have to go back and look things up and remember how to do things. So for those of us that are not quite sure if we have imposter phenomenon or
1: who want to learn more, what resources do you have for us? The first person that I would point you to is Dr. Pauline Clance. She is amazing. She is Googleable, and she will pop right up. And she has research on imposter phenomenon. And I would say, like I said, a lot of what I initially learned about imposter phenomenon was via social media. And I think it is something because so many people can relate to it. I think it's it's clickable content. Like I know that when I've posted about imposter phenomenon, my insights are great because people want to know more. So as always with social media, and I'm saying this as a social media person, be wary of what you see on social media about this stuff, because again, it's a multifactorial issue, right? So I would point you to Dr. Pauline Clance, anything that I have looked at, I have made sure that it is essentially based in true research, imposter phenomenon, right? We're seeing that imposter phenomenon is the correct use of this term, and that is from the woman who initially identified it and so making sure that the research is has a good foundation i think that you can go online it is free it's the clance imposter phenomenon scale somebody asked about the spelling it's c l a n c e so it's clance imposter phenomenon scale that's a free scale again it's not diagnosing you but it's saying you might have feelings of imposter phenomenon in certain ranges, you might have high experiences. Um, I think it's moderate experiences. And so then you can kind of get an idea of where you land, like, oh, I do feel this a lot. And so I think that's something that I could point people to. And I think it's just a good thing to, again, you're not self-diagnosing, but I think it's something that's helpful to go, like, there are certain ones that I scored I was more inclined to score higher on if I were to categorize each of the questions and put them into different categories. There were a group of questions that I would have scored a little bit higher on. And I went, oof, I really need to maybe pay attention to that area of my life. So I would really point you there. And I would honestly point you to the research because, again, it's all super foundational. And you'll find, I think somebody, there was an article that was, it was a news article and it said, stop telling women they have imposter syndrome. And it was like, well, hold on, we might have an imposter phenomenon or we might have those feelings. And so it's not, you know, again, it's not something to diagnose, but it's something to kind of explain those feelings or again, just to help build that self-awareness. So I would point you to the research because it's a very big buzzword. And if it continues to be a buzzword that can lead to, you know, it it just can lead to, I don't want to call it misinformation because I think there is some truth to things that you can find on the internet, but I would just point people to the research. I think that's the, that's the most important part, which I know SLPs don't want to hear that about their personal lives. They're like, don't tell me to go to the research or research things about myself, but I got to point people back to the research. Yeah.
0: Thank you for that. And like you said, you know, it's not necessarily misinformation, but total truth where the research is and helping us kind of understand a little bit more about ourselves. I think I I really appreciate that there's a scale out there. I will for sure check in with that to see Mm -hmm. how much imposter phenomenon I might (laughs) be experiencing, you know, 10 years in where you would think I would know what I'm doing 10
1: years in. (laughs) Well, and I mean, like I even feel it in my, I'm newly married and I feel it in my marriage sometimes where I'm like, Oh, I'm somebody's wife and I am failing and I'm doing, I'm not doing this well, or I burned dinner. And so there are some days where I have to go, oh, I feel like, you know, or I'll say, I'm so lucky that you chose to marry me. And it's like, well, hold on. We chose to marry each other. So I think that awareness of like, Hey, we actually chose each other. I, he was a willing participant in this marriage. And so knowing like, that's a very impostery kind of like comment, you know, and instead it's like, Hey, we worked really hard to get to this spot in our relationship. And how cool is that? And so I think it helps to at least be aware. I'm super big on self-talk, which I posted, I think it was last week that some people don't think linguistically and that threw me for a loop. And so I don't know how this would pertain to people who don't think linguistically, but like, I'm big on self-talk and knowing that i am audibly saying that i don't feel like i deserve my husband which on some level i will always feel that way but we chose each other i'm not i'm discounting my role as a wife and how awesome i am that he chose to marry me and it's the same thing that we do in our professional lives and so i think that awareness has helped me shift the way that i'll say things and so if you think about it from a neurological principle then i'm hopefully firing better wires together, right? I'm hopefully wire like I'm hopefully saying things in a different way that doesn't necessarily contribute to my feelings of imposterism. And I think that's an important thing too, is like you said, that self-awareness can be a huge piece because then I'm going, how am I talking to myself? How am I talking about my role in the school system and stuff like that? Fantastic.
0: Did you know that SpeechTherapyPD.com has weekly live and interactive webinars? We are the fastest growing CE provider. Subscribe today to get access to over 750 different courses in audio or video format. Can I ask you a few questions about your research at this time? Yes. All right. So your research... Is about imposter phenomenon and you are talking about affirmation and self talk. So, why don't you explain a little bit more about what that is to us?
1: So, I found in the research, I knew I wanted to do mindfulness and imposter phenomenon. In the research, like I said, I found that article from I believe it was 2017 that showed you there's a small likelihood that you'll have high self-compassion and be experiencing imposter phenomenon. So when I found that, then I led me into more research about self-compassion and I found that broad, I am statements are the way to go. When I'm doing the mindfulness sessions with my participants, we're not doing, I am a good SLP or I am a good student, or I am a good clinician. We're really going broad statements. So there are five statements, These are not research-based. These were just five broad statements that I chose for the purpose of this study. So I want to make sure that's clear. There's not research behind these specific five, but they are broad. So it's, I'm a good person. I am capable. I am worthy. I am strong and I am perseverant. And so you're looking at those five things. Those are five very broad qualities that aren't specific to who I am as a clinician because there might be a day where I don't feel like a good SLP and it is so frustrating when somebody will go, well, you're a great SLP. And it's like, no, I'm terrible today. Like today was terrible. I had a kid under the table and was throwing things and and like, that's not a good day for me. And so instead of focusing on that, zooming out into the broad perspective that was a mindfulness technique that was used that had some success in past research that I thought was really awesome because at the end of the day, I am a good person. I am capable, right? I just might not have had a great day in SLP world and that's okay. And so zooming out and doing that broad perspective, those are the self-affirmations. I had somebody, when I did my mock proposal, one of my classmates brought up a really good point. What if I don't believe those things about myself? And it was like, that's a really, really fantastic point. And I don't know. And so that's a limitation within the research is I can sit and do a guided meditation with someone and say, I am capable, I am strong, I am worthy. And if foundationally they don't believe that, I don't know how to necessarily go about that. That's definitely a limitation of the research I think there are limitations sometimes with these mindfulness techniques. Again, another another limitation is they might not think that way. They might not think in with language, right? So it it would have to be a totally different approach I think, which I don't even I can't even open that door. <laughs> but so that's really what it is is trying to build the self-confidence and trying to zoom out and look at the broader perspective with the hope that that doesn't necessarily fix imposter phenomenon because it's a multifactorial thing, but really hoping that it kind of tackles that self-compassion piece and at least helps with one aspect of imposter phenomenon. Fantastic.
0: And those are some great questions that your research is even bringing forward. You know, those questions of, well, what happens if I don't believe those things about myself? And I'd be curious to see, you know, the more that they heard those things about themselves, especially the way that they are saying those things, if they do start to believe them over time. You know, I don't know how long your research study is, but that would be a really fascinating study to do off of your study, uh, yeah. see how that, that plays out. And the thing that I really love about your research and just kind of about our field in general is so many of these topics are, there's so much overlap. Like as you're talking, I'm thinking about, oh my goodness. Yes. I totally need that as a new mom. I need to remind myself Mm -hmm. that I'm capable and, you know, (laughs) perseverant and I'm not a bad mom. You know, I might've had a bad afternoon, but it's okay. Right. You know, so, so I'm just thinking about how you've shared those things and how they really do transfer, outside of our SLP world. And I know last week there was an episode about ethics and a lot of the things she was talking about and how we handle ethical situations at work. I'm thinking that's how I could handle any difficult conversation in my life. You know, it's really, that's the beauty of our field. I think is that it's the hard thing too and that there's so much to it, but there's so much that can be applied elsewhere.
1: Yeah. And one of my capstone committee chair, she said, why should you as an SLP do this research? And I was a, and that was a question that made me want to rip my hair out as I was getting ready to defend my proposal. And I was like, hi, I mean, why me? Like, this really isn't my field, if you think about it. And at the end of the day, it was, I entered the field as a burnt out grad student, who then became a burnt out CF very quickly, and then became a burnt out SLP, you know, CCC SLP. And the progression was I never stopped getting burnt out. Like the burnout didn't just shed away from me once I graduated. And it didn't just shed away once I was a, or once I got my C's. And so the question of why me as an SLP, why should I be researching this? And it was like, man, I just, I've been there and I've been a burnt out grad student and I we want good people in the field and if you look at our field and you were if you were to ask a lot of SLPs in some regard they would have burnout and I would I would venture to guess a lot of SLPs love what they do but they don't love the burnout that comes with it because it, I think it's very easy especially in a helping profession you know we we care a lot about what we do and that can make it hard to draw those boundaries like I'm leaving work at work I'm not going to do this and so the the answer was we just we need more slp we need slp grad students to be equipped to enter a field that can that can make them more prone to burnout now again there's not research behind that statement that slps are more prone to burnout i'm speaking anecdotally and from my own experience and from the experience of other slps that i chat with often is that we are burnt out so the question or the answer was to equip grad students and who better to equip SLP grad students and SLPs with this information? So what you said, all of that to be said, you said, hopefully this is a, this is essentially hopefully a stepping stone where we will, pro- we will not get all of the answers with this research. Um, there are only six participants. I don't expect to be able to generalize everything because of six participants, but I'm hoping that it's a stepping stone or something that opens up a door for us to go, how can we give grad students something practical and applicable that they can do daily? Because sure, we can say and provide mental health services, or we can say, you know, therapy might be helpful, right? Rocky Mountain, the school that I'm um, at for my doctorate, offers a membership to Better Help for therapy, which is awesome, right? That's a great resource that that school provides for me. It is hard to go to therapy on a weekly basis when you're working full time and doing a doctorate, let alone the people in my program who are also moms and all of all of that, like, and so it was can we find something that's practical and applicable and that's really what the goal of the research is of this research and any research I do in the future is not to not to give people another thing they have to add to their to-do list, but to more give people something to put in their back pocket for a day that is feeling a little bit heavier and they're feeling a little bit more like an imposter. So hopefully it is a stepping stone in the right direction.
0: Fantastic. Thank you. You know, it's This is a conversation that has come up several times. I am not quite sure what number episode we are on. I should know that off of the top (laughs) of my head, but I don't. But we're not that many episodes in. And that is something that when I reach out to SLPs that I am friends with or that I just enjoy their content and I ask them, what are your passion projects? And a lot of them are about, you know, this idea of mitigation burnout. Marie Murataya was on uh, at the beginning of, I think she was like my, I think she was my second or third guest. And she's a young SLP. Mm-hmm. She's only been in the field five years. And I thought, well, what does she know about burnout? Come on, you know, but that is a very, very great point that you brought up of I was a burnt out grad student who became a burnt out CF, you know, especially I know I've been in districts where this CF is given a really tough caseload because they're given this, they're the new hire and they get all the leftover schools or the, you know, the leftover kids or whatever. I know a clinic in our area that I work in is really tough on their CFs because it's like this, this training program for them. And it's, it's too bad that that's the way it is, because then I think that's how we have these young SLPs that are burnt out. And I know a lot of us are leaving the school system right now, and it's a, it's a real problem. So I appreciate you and the research that you're doing and those that are trying to be proactive with, okay, what are some things that have helped me that I can share along the way, and how can I engage in this research to help our profession as a whole feel good about what we do? You know, I, I 100% agree with you. I have never met an SLP that doesn't appreciate the work we do mm-hmm. um, and doesn't have fun with the work we do, whether it is in the acute care setting or a school based setting, um, but it's the extra stuff, right? So,
1: yeah. Absolutely. And there's an SLP in our district, who's been doing this for 20 something years. I mean, and that might be on the low end, it might be closer to 30 something. And she genuinely loves it. And she is inching closer and closer to retirement, but she doesn't want to retire because she loves what she does so much. And I want to be that person. I love this field. At the end of the day, I'll come home and I'll just go, I love my job so much. Like I really genuinely do. I love what we do. I love the people we get to work with. I love that as we were talking before we started recording, right? We can be in so many different areas and you can go, "Mm, this one's not for me. And you can jump to another setting and it is so, so cool. And it's a great setting, but I know that if I were to continue with my imbalanced work-life, you know, I had no work-life balance, right? If I were to continue with that, I don't think I would get to be that SLP that's at the table going, I love what I do so much that I'll, I'll cut it down, but I'm not retiring all the way, or I'm going to do this every so often because I really love it. And so I want to make sure that I am that person at the table. And I know that people who get into this job, I have, I have faith, I don't know it for a fact, but I have faith that there are people like us who genuinely love what we do. But there are so many factors that can really just bring you down. And some of those factors I don't know that we can tackle right away, right? But I think when it comes to the very individualized and personal factors like the imposter phenomenon or like you were talking about burnout, right, I think those things are within our control and how can we better equip our students so that we have more SLPs who are on 20, 30 years sitting at the table going, man, I genuinely love it. Because as a, as a newer SLP, that's inspiring and that makes me go, man, I can I can. There is longevity in this field in some way. It's just we have to find a better way to get there and to get more SLPs like that, I think. Absolutely. So that will lead me to my
0: next question. What is one actionable strategy that we can start doing tomorrow to help mitigate some of this imposter phenomenon or help us out with it if we are
1: experiencing it? I would say I'll circle back to what we kind of talked about. We're bringing that awareness to things, to how you are talking about the things that you do. You have successes. (laughs) You will have success as a therapist. And are you going, "Well, well, the kid worked really hard. Or are you going in your head, you know, are you saying, man, I picked a really great strategy for that kid. Or I did a great job of, Evaluating and working specifically to that kid's needs, right? Because I think it's very easy for us. I had a kid who came back from winter break and his R was 100% bye, dismissed, see ya. And I had had him for six months and I went, well, man, that kid just did really well with his R and he just spontaneously, and it was like, no, you put in six months of hard work with that kid. He didn't just walk, wake up one day and was like, I know how to say my R. Like maybe there was some, because he's young, you know, maybe there's something to be said about that. But at the end of the day, I did what I was supposed to do to help remediate that R and to help get that R better, right? So I would say the one actionable thing is, how are you, what are you saying when you have a success? Are you discounting what you, anything that you might have done to get that success? Are you saying, well, you know, it was just luck or I'm, my favorite is I'm very blessed, right? (laughs) No, I worked my butt off for it. And so I think that can be a way because to tell people to have self-compassion, I feel like, and that's actually what I have written down. But as we've talked about it, it's such a broad statement and I don't know. What self compassion is going to look like for me tomorrow. Um, and so to say to have self compassion is super, I don't think that's an actionable step. But I think one of the ways that we can try to show ourselves self compassion while working on our feelings of imposterism is to make sure that you're not discounting any of the success that you've had. If you're in a certain position, you worked hard to get into that position. If you're a brand new, new grad and you're heading into your CF, you worked hard to get to your CF. You didn't graduate because the school was like, oh, let them graduate, right? You graduated for a reason. You worked your butt off and you got there and you are supposed to be in the position that you're in. So making sure that you're not discounting yourself and the successes, which I know sounds, as I'm saying it, I go, oof, that's cliche, but it's so true if you... One of my friends back in North Carolina, she would always laugh because anything that she would say is a compliment to me, I would discount it immediately with almost a disclaimer where she would go, oh, I like your pants. And I go, ah, they were cheap from Target. And it's like, just accept the compliment, right? And so that's an overload of discounting or, oh, you look beautiful today. Oh, I washed my hair. Thank you. And it's like, no, take the compliment. And so being able to do that with ourselves, I think is huge. Being able to have that self-compassion and have that, I did that. I contributed to that success. That didn't just spontaneously happen. I was an active member of that success. I think that's one of, that's been one of the biggest things for me is, and so that is a little bit anecdotal. There is some research behind it, but it is very anecdotal in what I'm saying that that is, that was something that really helped me just making sure that I wasn't discounting any success that I had. And I think that's the actionable thing. Show yourself some self-compassion by not discounting anything awesome that you've done.
0: Are you taking advantage of the certificate tracker? Not only does it store your certificates from all of your evidence-based and practical courses from speechtherapypd.com, but you can also upload certificates earned from other CE providers. It's the easiest way to store and keep track of your CEUs. Just another perk of membership. Thank you. I am totally going to start paying attention to just being aware of the times that I discount those things because I'm thinking about, I mean, I I wonder, you know, I wonder if it's a gender thing sometimes because I know my husband, you know, somebody will say, something kind to him. And he, we are big Elise Myers fans in our house uh, from TikTok. (laughs) And, you know, he has started saying, thank you. I received that. But even before Elise Myers, he would just say, oh, thank you. He like postures himself in such a way every single time and just goes, oh, thank you. I appreciate that. And he does take it in. Whereas with me, I'll be like, Oh, it was nothing. Oh, I don't know. You know, I don't think it really turned out right if I'm cooking dinner or something. Right. You know, I come up with the list of critiques right away and it could be a personality thing, but I do notice that a lot of women are just, oh, no, thank you.
1: Oh, you know, I I just got it at Target. Like you said, on sale. It's it's this old thing. It was on sale as if that makes it any less cute your pants are cute. Oh, they were on sale. Okay. They're still cute. I mean, it's so, and it's interesting that you bring up the gender thing because back in 1978, when Dr. Clance identified imposter phenomenon, it was primarily in women. She identified it in 150 women in this research study, in this initial study. And so it was initially thought to just be a something that women experience. And then obviously, as more research has occurred, we're seeing that men have it as well, or experience it as well, not have it, they experience it as well. But it's interesting that you bring up that it might be there might be some gender aspects to it. Interesting. Well,
0: just as you were talking about, you know, even accepting compliments, it it was making me think about how many times I've seen women discredit compliments Mm -hmm. or not know how to take them and how, you know, we watch athletes And of course that's a gender thing because primarily males are who we see in their press conferences and, Oh, you know, you had a great shot up there. Thank you. Oh yeah. Thank you. You know, it was this, this, I worked hard for it. You know, we've been putting our time in the gym, you know, and it's, it's saying like, yes, we are successful because of the work we do and how little we see women do that. Yeah. Absolutely. So uh, I'm, yeah, thank you for, for this conversation just in general, because like it just, it doesn't just pertain to our lives as speech therapists. It pertains to all aspects of our lives.
1: Thank you for having me. This has been so fun.
0: (laughs) Awesome. If anybody has any follow-up questions for Danny, feel free to pop them into the chat or the Q&A box now. So as you've gone through the research, has it changed your relationship to your imposter phenomenon? You touched on it briefly about recognizing that you are in that cycle, that imposter phenomenon cycle, but in what other
1: ways has it impacted your relationship with it? I think just being able to recognize that like I said, that I'm discounting myself or that I'm contributing because I'm an active contributor to my imposter phenomenon. I don't think that's something that I can necessarily, I don't want to say place blame, but I don't think I can pick at one thing or point to one thing. I might be able to, in my personality, I'm a perfectionist. I am type A, I'm an Enneagram one. So if you are familiar with that, that means i like things the way like they're supposed to be i'm very justice driven and so you can probably point to a few of my personality things or a few of my personality traits that might contribute to that but i think i am a very active participant or an active contributor to my imposter phenomenon so i think the main thing that's happened is i've taken a more active role in trying to decrease it like i don't think my changing my job didn't fix that, right? I am, I have been in four or five different settings since I graduated in 2018. And that's a lot for a four-year career. And it's been ever present in every single job, even, and I am on year, I will be heading into my third year in the school district that I'm at. So it's not longevity of my job, right? Like that didn't, It might be a little bit different, but it's still there. So it's, if I were to point to the one common denominator in those different settings and everything like that, or in my marriage and in my doctorate and in my Instagram and anything like that, like the common denominator is me. So I think being, taking that active role and that ownership has helped me take an active role in, in preventing it and working, not preventing it, but help helping to kind of mitigate it and, and addressing it and going, Hey, the way that I said that is phew, that was not good. That totally discounted anything that I might've done or being able to tell my husband, don't let me get away with saying things like that. Like he'll say, you just totally brush that compliment off. And it's like, you're, you're right. I totally did. Thank you for that. Right. Even just that simple act of thanking my husband for complimenting me. Like that's a huge thing that, can add up over time. And we, he and I had this conversation today. It's 1%. You have to just strive to be 1% better every day. And I am somebody, I strive to hit that home run every single day. I have to be 50% better and going, Hey, I can take actionable steps, right? I can take very small actionable steps every day, but as long as I am an active participant and I know that I am an active contributor to my own imposter phenomenon, there's a sense of ownership going, hey, that's not going to help my imposter phenomenon at all, by just going, oh, whatever, when my husband says I look beautiful today, right? But instead going, oh, thank you. That's 1% better. That's a step in the right direction. So I think that's been the biggest thing is knowing the role that I play in my own feelings of imposter phenomenon. And that's been a really interesting transition for me and just really kind of fun to be able to have that self-awareness for something that I think I've been dealing with for a while. So. Yeah, absolutely. As you are talking about your, your personality
0: traits, I'm thinking, oh yeah, of course you might have imposter phenomenon. You know, issues and, and how many SLPs are type A perfectionists. I'm not a type A perfectionist. And I remember in grad school saying to one of my professors, I don't know that I'm in the right spot. I don't fit Mm -hmm. in here. And yeah. you know, because a lot of my classmates had color-coded their highlighting with their notes and they had these perfect, you know, backpacks and things and or their perfect, you know, notebooks and you know, and their right book bag for the right course. And mm-hmm. I was just barely making it through. I felt it like. <laughs> yeah. I remember saying that to her, like, is this is this something that I'm gonna need to know? You know, and even that right there. Is kind of an imposter phenomenon right of yeah i don't belong here this isn't this isn't for me and i i did fine i obviously i graduated yeah. yes. <laughs> <laughs> but i think that that's a that's an interesting thing to reflect on and think about how of course certain personality types might lend themselves to imposter phenomenon and then that self-talk i think is huge You know, that self-talk is huge of me thinking back and reflecting on that moment of like, I'm looking around class and thinking, I don't fit in, but really we're all paying tuition. We all
1: fit in. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Right, right. Or just being able to kind of snap out of it and go, I find that sometimes my most imposter, we'll say imposterism fueling moments are when I'm not focused on the here and now, right? I'm focused on something that's way outside of the present realm. And so I think that's also something is being able to go, okay, well, hold on now. Like, let's take a step back for a second and being able to assess where you are now. Like, I am I need to be here presently. And I think that's a huge thing too. Mm, that is for sure a huge thing. What are things that
0: you do that help you kind of stay in the here and now versus following those rabbit holes of our minds, you know, down down to places that are not great.
1: I am terrible at that. That is an area that I am so bad at, but the person who is really good at it is my husband. And so that was that conversation that we had today where he saw that I was being very hard on myself. And he said, I just need 1% better. Like, and then Imagine like where we'll be, however many years down the road in our marriage, when you're what you that one percent added up every single day. And so he's very good at it, where he just will say, I just what's the point of carrying that with me, or what's the point of worrying that far ahead in the future? And I think that question would like similar to the question, Well, why you as an SLP? Why should you be doing this research? It's why am I thinking about that, and does that control, does that impact anything? I can't change the past. I can't predict the future. So why am I so fixated on those two things? And I think, like I said, I am terrible at it, but my sweet husband every day will give me a little nugget. And that's something that he's very much said is, what's the point? Like, I'll ask him, you don't fixate on this. And he's like, well, what's the point? Like, and he's a basketball coach. So he will bring, he'll come home after a tough loss and be my wonderful, hilarious husband. And I go, how are you? Like, I'm upset about your loss. And he's like, well, what's the point of me bringing that home and bringing that into our relationship? And I think that's a big that I've been trying to do as somebody that's really bad at it is ask myself, what's the point? Does this influence anything? Does this impact anything? If I continue to spiral, if I continue to go down that rabbit hole, does it change anything? And if the answer is no, it just really takes away from my joy in that present moment, then I'm probably going to try I'll say, try, because like I said, I'm really bad at this, but try to take a step back from it and leave it where it's supposed to be. So to answer your question, I am terrible at it, but I will tell you what my awesome husband does and how he tries to help me. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you for, I,
0: your research is so fascinating because it really does bring up so many different questions lot. of things that we can. I mean, we could probably talk about this for another two hours or so about how this impacts, you know, not just our speech and language practice, but how it impacts our marriages or other relationships that we have and other roles that we, we have outside of the therapy room. Yeah. So thank absolutely. you. What other, you know, takeaways do you have as far as imposter phenomenon your research has, has given you?
1: one of the other takeaways is I think that it's going to be something that I don't think it ever goes away. And here's something very anecdotal for you. And this might be a hot take and there is zero research on this. So nobody hold me to the fire in terms of the research behind this, but I think there is some level of it that is good. I think that there's some level of, my parents always said, Before a volleyball game, if I said I was nervous, they always said, it's good that you're nervous, right? It's good. That's good that you're nervous because then you're going to, you understand the weight of what you're heading into. And so I think there's a level of it that I will always, that I anticipate I'll always have because I think there is some level that is healthy, if that makes sense. And like I said, that might be a very hot take and I, there's zero evidence behind that, but I do think there's some level of having that bit of like, oof, I have to work hard to stay in this position. I think there's a little bit of that, that might be healthy. And that was something that I, that's an opinion that I developed as I did the research where it was like, okay, well, some of these things aren't super toxic and tragic that I'm feeling like, that's not, you know, I think that if I were to walk into the speech room and go, I don't need to do any research. I don't really need to look at the evidence behind the interventions that I'm going to do. I'm just going to throw spaghetti to the wall and see what happens. And I didn't really go into any of the evidence or I felt like I didn't have to, because I knew what to do. I think if I have that level of Confidence. I, I don't know that I'm necessarily being the best SLP that I can. There is a level of, I have to dig for things because I don't know everything in this field. And so I'll have a kid that'll come across my desk and I'll have to go, Oof, I have to dig into the research and I really have to get into this. And so I think that's something that I've, like I said, that's an opinion I've developed after doing the research is that maybe. Like, I I like a doctor that is going to have some sense of humility. Now, I should disclose, I don't think that having confidence and having imposter phenomenon are mutually exclusive. And I'm not really equating the two. I'm not saying that you can't be confident and have imposter phenomenon. I think that's the goal. But it's more like you want to make sure, like, I think there is a, a, a healthy level because then I am going to work hard. I am going to pour a little bit more into it than I might not, because there is a level of, I don't feel like I deserve this. And I know that might sound like a super not healthy way to look at it, but that's just, that's my personal opinion that I don't think there's, I don't think it's all bad. I think it gets bad when it impacts your quality of life. Thank you. Thank you
0: for making some of those distinctions. Because I think, you know, earlier in our conversation, I was thinking, well, I don't know. I mean, if somebody was overly confident, they're kind of not fun to be around. And and it also doesn't serve its purpose of if we're not constantly striving to be better as clinicians. And so I really liked how you said, if it impacts your quality of life, then it's probably not a healthy version of it. So thank you for bringing up that point and having that discussion uh, and making those distinctions. And Jill asks a great question. What are grad schools doing to help students combat imposter phenomenon while in grad school and in the future?
1: That's a great question. I don't have the answer for you. I will give you an answer from my experience as a grad student and actually what's driving me to do this. I had a professor who at the beginning of class, turn off the lights, you can put your head down, you can meditate, but we're going to take X amount of minutes to get ready for our class. And the main reason that this professor did that is because he needed to do it so he could show up better for us because he was coming from the clinic running into class and he's not his best self if he's you know stressed as he's running from one thing to the next and so he was one professor in a in a large program who was implementing that mindfulness i don't know what grad schools are doing because i don't think that there is a an expectation set i don't think that Yeah, I don't think there's an expectation set. I don't think there's the expectation that you will provide something for our students because look, this is the data and we're seeing that our students do feel this way. Now, there might not be an expectation because there might be, there is, I won't say there might be, there is a huge gap in the research. So that's something to remember as well that it's, there's just not a lot of research. So anything that grad schools would be doing, it's on their own. It's going to be an individual grad school thing that they're doing. So I will speak to my experience, but I don't think grad schools as a whole, I don't know what they're all doing. Yeah. Like I said, I actually think this might be the same professor
0: that you had that I also had that was telling us, fake it till we make it. And that angered me because I remember thinking, but I don't even know what to fake, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So, but that is really cool to see that progression, you know, and to see, I would hope that professors are being super present and mindful of the students sitting in front of them and picking up on those subtle cues that they might be giving, or maybe not so subtle cues that they're giving.
1: Well, I do know that some of the participants that I've had, because one of the exclusion criteria is they can't have a regular mindfulness practice because then we can't It helps us better draw conclusions that any improvements are due to my intervention versus their own, right? And I think I had two of my six participants said that they took a course on mindfulness during grad school. So I don't want to totally discount anything that grad schools might be doing. I just don't know about it, to be honest. So that was really encouraging to hear that they had taken a course or they had had a guest lecture on mindfulness. So I think that there's, I think they're starting to get there. So I want to make sure I'm not negating anything that grad schools are doing because I have heard of some things outside of my own personal experience. That's fantastic.
0: Yeah. And maybe us as SLPs that are nearby grad schools, if we are practicing mindful, I don't know what I'm trying to say, but if we, you know, if we can offer those services or, you know, even if we take on grad students, what skills can we give them for their tool belt that aren't therapy related? that's definitely something that I'll be thinking of this summer for sure. I believe I might be taking on a student. So that will definitely be something that I can start checking in on with them and giving them giving them some positive practices that they can start using as well. So thank you so so very much Danny for just having this fun conversation and for jumping into the research, you know. I think it's so valuable in so many different ways. And you are spending a ton of your time jumping in and helping people better their lives. And that's exactly what we do as SLPs, right?
1: Yes, absolutely. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. And all right, so
0: everyone, just as a reminder at the conclusion of today's course, you'll want to log into your therapy speechtherapypd.com account and the course portal and make sure to complete all modules, especially the one entitled quiz. We will see you back here next Tuesday for our next podcast episode with the fabulous Angie Neal to talk about literacy and the SLP's role. It's going to be great. All right. We'll see you soon. Thanks for joining us at This Speech Life. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs. We appreciate your positive reviews and support and would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe.